You're listening to episode 34 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. I'm Tara, he's Alex, and today we look back at the good, the great, and the heartbreak of another week of Cardinals baseball. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It is Tara and Alex for real back together this time. It feels like it's been a while, only a couple of weeks, but nonetheless, we are both back and the Cardinals have had an eventful little stretch here since Alex and I were both on the show last. Alex, I don't know about you. Even though the Cardinals are still right in it as far as the standings are concerned, as much as you can look at that in June, only two and a half out of first place in the central at this moment in time. Some good things have happened. I'm not sure I feel dramatically better about where this team is than where it was, you know, at the end of May, let's say. (laughs) I agree. I I don't either. It feels, uh, what's there was one series. I think it was after they swept the Cubs in, uh, right at the end of May or uh, right at the end of May, heading into June when they swept the Cubs. And even after that, we were like, yeah, that was great, but it still kind of felt shaky. And that's that's who they've been the last three or four weeks. You know, they, they haven't really put together a string of games where they look really good. And I think the problems that existed then in many ways still exist now. They've been playing competition that isn't perhaps quite as intense when you look at, you know, the Marlins and the Angels and now playing against the Athletics. They currently have a 3-1 lead in the fifth, which is great, but we're still seeing some mediocre Um, offense. I I hate to be the bearer of bad news. It is uh, now 3-3. There it is. (laughs) Jack Jack Flaherty just gave a two-run homer to uh, Chad Pinder. So the problems that were a problem still exist. (laughs) Um, Jack Flaherty and the starting rotation being one of those problems that we continue to talk about. But we'll get to some of that as we move along. Plenty of negativity to discuss, despite the fact that this team really is still right in the hunt in the NL Central. But I want to go back to this weekend because, again, I don't know what your expectations were, but the whole buildup to Albert Pujols and his return to St. Louis, I'll just say I was a little conflicted. I certainly in many ways expected to be, uh, you know, for there to be some some emotions, some nostalgia there. But I was also a little annoyed by sort of the insistence that this was going to be the weekend of the year. And then it kind of was. <laughs> so let, let's just sort of go back to this weekend a little bit and talk about Albert Pujols in St. Louis for the first time since he left after the 2011 season. There's a lot to take away from it, I think. But what stood out to you as you think back on this weekend and seeing Albert, seeing the fan reaction, seeing the the national reaction to the fan reaction and everything that went along with it? Well, first, I heard you talking to Shoptaw, and I was shocked that that was kind of your take. Not shocked, but I was surprised that was your take because I thought the buildup, to the weekend was actually right on the money and very appropriate. I thought, you know, just because we're talking about how long it's been since he's been there, um, once you remind yourself how good he really was those 10, uh, not 10, 11 seasons in St. Louis, 
how many how successful they were, how many games they won, how many pennants they won, how many World Series they won, um, the way it all unfolded with him leaving and then him coming back. I thought it was a huge deal. Uh, so yeah, I, especially because you're not someone who who is negative, you know, for the purpose of being negative or, or who likes to, I guess, dictate how people should feel about things. So I was ter- I was shocked to hear you say that when you were talking to Daniel. But I will say, as much because I was very much looking forward to the weekend, pretty much since you know the schedule came out and we all saw when it was going to occur. You know, I wasn't just like going crazy about it, but I was I was very excited. I, I think it was probably the most ex- uh, it was the one regular season series I was most looking forward to, like a lot of people. And and then it came, and it was I don't know how to describe it. I, I thought it was absolutely perfect. Yeah. Um, you know, not counting the games. Uh, you know, anytime you lose the third game of a uh, three-game series, uh, even after you win the first two, it, you, you always kind of leaves a, I guess, a sour taste in your mouth. But so, forget about the games. The whole weekend was perfect. I thought the crowds were perfect. Did they overdo it? Absolutely. But was it the right time to overdo it? I th- I think it was. I'm you know, we're talking about Albert Pujols after Stan Musial. He's probably the greatest player the organization has ever had. You can even make the case he's he's the best. He hit a home run. I mean, you, you just you could not have scripted it better. You know, he he had the he had the what he had an infield single. He had a he hit a ball that should have been a double that most people would have gotten a double, but you know, Albert is kind of older, a little bit slower, so he only got a single. I was happy he got a couple of hits because you know, I really have a vested interest in his career batting average staying above 300. And it's at 301 <laughs> right now, which seems insane to me when you think about that 10-season stretch in St. Louis where he batted well above 300. To think that he has a chance of, you know, falling below 300, probably will fall below 300. And that's kind of sad uh, when it's all said and done. But no, I thought it was perfect. I thought it's one of the rare things that not only lived up to, but exceeded expectations. Yeah. And and here's where it's going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, because I agree with you. I thought the weekend was incredible. The only thing that I had a little bit of a hesitation about, and I, I in the podcast with, with Daniel Shopta, after the fact, I went, wow, I didn't I didn't think that it was going to sound as negative as it did when I was when I was saying it. But it just to me felt like let the weekend happen instead of trying to make it be a thing before it's a thing. Because I wanted it to oh, be but, real and I wanted it to be it, genuine. It is a thing. Of course, it is. But to me, the way that it 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 felt like there was so much buildup that it was like, if you aren't going to be this person that sees this as the greatest weekend that's happened in years, then you're doing it wrong. Sure. Rather than, hey... Albert's coming back to St. Louis for the first time. This is going to be cool. And then kind of stepping back and watching it happen, which is how it actually happened. Mm -hmm. So the weekend as it unfolded went exactly how I would have wanted it to go. Everything about it was, was perfect. Like you said, it was just to me a little bit trying to force the storyline when it didn't need to be, it was already going to be a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying though, it feels like like let's say the Super Bowl is coming up, and you're like, wait, let's make sure this actually turns out to be an important game before we overreact. You know, <laughs> like no, it's the Super Bowl. Like there's going to be a bunch of pregame. There's going to be people talking about it for weeks. Uh, this was kind of the Cardinals' version of the Super Bowl in terms of you know 
I'll tell you what, not to change subjects real quick, but it almost made me sad seeing the stadium just packed and amped like that. Cause we haven't seen that in a while. You know, yeah. don't get me wrong. Like the Cardinals do fine attendance wise, uh, especially comparatively speaking, but that place was packed and it wasn't just packed. They were into it. Uh, you know, it felt like a playoff game. Like you could just hearing that buzz, you know, through your TV screen with that many people there, that many people uh, with a vested interest in what's happening. Man, it got me excited and it made me miss Cardinals playing in October because that's what it felt like. Yeah. And and quite honestly, it made me miss having a guy in the middle of the lineup like Albert Pujols, right? Where you feel like you have to watch every at bat, not because it's, I mean, it's obviously a different storyline with Albert now, not necessarily because every at bat you think he's going to come up with some game changing hit, but because, you know, you don't know how many times you're going to get to see that again, certainly not in St. Louis. So different circumstances, but the point remains the Cardinals don't have someone like Albert Pujols in their organization right now. And as much as we all wanted Paul Goldschmidt to be that guy, as much as I think Paul Goldschmidt would like to be that guy, he's not for a number of reasons, the least of which is his performance at the moment, but also because, you know, he doesn't have a, a decade of experience with a city and with an organization and everything that comes with it. So I was a little more, I guess, emotionally overwhelmed than I expected to be simply because I don't know to me there was this this little bit of you know we're kind of trying to rewrite the story here and make it this very happy parting and it wasn't but it was a very happy homecoming I think for everyone involved and it was it was really special it was something that I don't think a whole lot of fan bases get to experience in a sense because you know you don't always have someone who spends the best 11 years of their career in one city and then moves on and takes as long as it did to get them back in front of those fans again. So it was, it was a really unique experience, I think. And, and that seems to be the takeaway from a lot of the people that were involved in it, whether it was Albert himself or Cardinals fans or the players on both teams and everyone who got a chance to see it. And I think it was everything that it could have been. This may sound like a weird thing to say, but it almost made me feel jealous of people who are about 10 years younger than me, people who grew up with Pujols, people who got into like really got into Cardinals baseball because of Pujols. Uh, And just to think how lucky they are because of that, because, you know, Ozzy Smith was my guy, you know, he was my favorite player when I was 10. And so that means he will always be my favorite player because when you're 10, those things matter so much more than when you're 40. You know what I mean? Or or when you're 30. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Albert Pujols meant a ton to me when I was watching him. But he wasn't the reason why I got into baseball. He wasn't the reason why I started following the Cardinals. Uh, I just happened to be lucky enough to have one of the greatest players of all time playing for my team. Uh, So man, I yeah, I'm almost envious of those people who got to say like, yeah, I just happen to be like eight, nine years old getting into baseball. And look, there's Albert Pujols, <laughs> you know, like it doesn't <laughs> really get any better than that, you know, because by the time you get older and jaded, like, you know, not jaded, but just like, you know, you learn certain things are more important than what they seemed at age 10 and stuff. It doesn't quite matter as much, but man, you, you could not have scripted it better to grow up with Albert Pujols. Like, you know, so many fans, like I've, I converse with, you know, from time to time did. And 
yeah, I, jealous probably isn't the right word, but just like you really see how much he meant to a whole generation of Cardinals fans. Yeah. And not that they wouldn't have been Cardinals fans um, had it not been for him, but how much he solidified that and how much he just, I guess, amplified it, made it even better because how you can't get any better than having Albert Pujols in his prime on your favorite team, you know, when you're coming of age and getting into baseball. Yeah. Here's the therapy session part of our podcast. I, I'm not that much younger than you, but I got into baseball a little bit later than some young kids do just because of the distance and the lack of access to Cardinals baseball, really. So Albert really was my guy when I was initially just over-invested in, in Cardinals baseball. And perhaps there's an element to that of it for me because, look, I was I was very jilted <laughs> when Albert left for the West Coast. And man, it took a long time for me to just as a as a baseball fan and as someone that until that point was, I don't know, maybe less aware of the business side of it all to be able to process that and and move on and appreciate the opportunity to really become a, a huge Cardinals fan during that era. So maybe part of my weird, I don't know how I feel about this, was just sort of the remnant of <laughs> uh, of the the bad breakup with, with Albert Pujols all those years ago. But you're right. It's, it's easy to almost take for granted how incredible that decade of baseball was with someone that, you know... Th- we see players getting better and better all the time and his numbers still hold up. I mean, it's, it's incredible what he was able to do and how he was able to do it and, and kind of carry an entire city with him over the course of that 10 years. So, you know, I don't know how you even wrap that up in trying to talk about it other than to just go back to the ovation after ovation after ovation and I, I, I don't know that they would have ever stopped <laughs> had there been one more game or two more games. I think you still would have seen that, you know, unless it came down to like postseason baseball. Then there might have been a little bit of a different story. But nonetheless, great spot in the season for that series to happen. I, as well. I was <laughs> also surprised and I, I've heard other people uh, make note of this as well how much he seemed to be enjoying it. I've never seen him smile that much. Yeah. Like the Albert Pujols I knew uh, would have taken that first ovation. Um, but then after that, probably would have had more of a gruff look on his face and shut it down. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not to sound silly, but he, he really did kind of look like a kid out there just having a blast and soaking it up and just loving all of it. Uh, and so that was both unexpected, but also really good to see and made me happy. That was a really special part of it. Hearing him talk about... Cardinals fans about his years in St. Louis, all of that was maybe a little overdue as far as getting the chance to hear him say that about those years and that part of his life. Um, But yeah, I mean, seeing him even Sunday night, nearly in tears in his at bats, it, it, it meant a lot to him. And, and I think there was sort of this sense when he left that, maybe it really didn't mean that much to him and to see it the way that it played out over the weekend. I think that eliminated any doubts that those years of his life meant the world to him as did coming back to, to share in that perhaps one final time with St. Louis. Let me ask you this though. 
he's at the point where he, I'm sure, is thinking about the end of his playing career and what life looks like after that. Do you think that he could at some point come back and and be part of what part of something that goes on in St. Louis as far as baseball is concerned? Or is he has he kind of closed that chapter of his life and now he'll he'll be whatever he is in baseball without necessarily attaching himself to St. Huh. Louis? I don't know. Uh, I mean, he'll certainly be a guy in a red jacket, right, on opening day, uh, even if he's somehow affiliate, you know, like say Larusa, and I don't know if this is a great comparison, but you know, Larusa was connected with the Diamondbacks for a little bit and then the Red Sox, but he still came back on opening day and wore a red jacket, correct? Mm-hmm. I would be shocked if Pujols at least isn't playing that role, like like a Cardinal, at least in that capacity, if, that, if that's what you meant. Did you mean actually come back and, and take, you know, take a few more at-bats with the Cardinals or? No, no, no. Like I mean, we would Edmonds? all love that, right? <laughs> yeah. Or like a Jim Edmonds type where he's. Uh, yeah. So w- what exactly is meant by his personal service contract with the Angels? What are the terms there? What does that mean? As far mean? as I can tell, no one knows. I, I, okay, so that sure. personal service contract is essentially like you will show up to things when we tell you to show up to things uh, <laughs> and participate in things when we ask you to participate in things. Oh my God. So that's like my ultimate nightmare. I wouldn't sign that for. Right. I, I'm not <laughs> but I mean, some, he's getting paid for it. I'm so. not going to some boring banquet <laughs> at like some town in the middle of California. No. It kind of guarantees that they get to use the brand of Albert Pujols right. in association with the Angels, as opposed to perhaps the Cardinals or wherever else it was. That's the part of the contract that feels a little bit like spite to me. Well, <laughs> a little bit like, fine, I'm going to go somewhere else. And when I'm done playing, you don't even get to invite me back here. <laughs> well, he- Here's a question. How much currency are the Angels even going to get out of that, though? Uh, I have no idea. Because, you know, we all know he hasn't. He declined pretty quickly when he went to uh, Anaheim. Uh, he's not, I don't want to call him a shell of his former former self, but he's certainly not anything close to what, what he once was. Um, yeah. And perhaps a bigger point is they have Mike Trout now, who obviously is still in his playing days, but he just signed a contract that made it seem like he's probably either going to finish his career with the Angels or he's at least going to be, going to be playing there for a very, very long time. I guess my point is they don't really need a face of the franchise because they have one, even though it's a, yeah. it's a current player. Like, I, I don't know quite how that dynamic works, but I don't know. I just don't know how much mileage they can get out of Albert Pujols with that fan base when they have Mike Trout and they have Otani and they have other, you know, ex- exciting players. So I don't I'm not, know. I'm honestly not sure this is possibly speaking out of turn because I, I don't really know that many Angels fans, but I, I'm not really sure that Albert Pujols in Anaheim has the same significance. In fact, I'm quite sure that he doesn't have the same significance oh, as he does as in he does St. Louis. Oh, I, I can't. I think he's well regarded. I think for a lot of the reasons we heard, I, you know, he won. The, I think the fact that he chose to go there, yeah. that in and of itself is a gesture of, hey, this is our guy. Uh, but also, you read all those stories out. He's mentored all the young players. Right. He's been nothing but an awesome teammate, which has always been the case with him. He, you know, he, even though he always kind of had this, uh, I, I don't know, pr- protective shell mm-hmm. almost. You know, he was he could be a curmudgeon sometimes with the media. You always heard about him being an awesome teammate. 
So I, I think they certainly like him. Like I, I, even though he hasn't been um, lived up to probably what they were hoping they would get, I still think he's he's relatively popular and they really like him. But yeah, I, he's certainly not to them what he is to us. Yeah, and, and I think probably more so to his teammates than necessarily to the fan base, which is who you would be marketing to with using him as part of whatever branding or, or any events or whatever it might be. I, I also believe that that's an option for the personal service contract. Again, there's not a lot of details about how these work. Mm-hmm. And after that contract, Major League Baseball didn't let those happen anymore. So there's not really a precedent for it. There's not really anything that's happened since then. Um, so I, I'm not sure they even know how it's going to work <laughs> at the end of uh, his his playing contract. But it'll, it'll be interesting to see. But it does, that does throw a little bit of a wrench into, you know, after seeing everything that happened this weekend, kind of how you think that might play out and and what his impact, what his legacy, what his story could continue to be as it relates to the Cardinals. But I'm curious now, I guess, more than I was before this weekend to know how he'd like it to play out. I think at the very least, he's going to be a red jacket opening day guy, you know, inner circle with Gibson, Ozzy, those guys. And he's going to have a statue. Um, Is that statue going to look like you know, the same size as stands, probably not, but it's, he's, he's got to have a statue. I mean, I, I saw a lot of, I don't want to be a jerk, but I saw a lot of really dumb, like poll questions. <laughs> like even after like, should Pujols get a statue? I'm like, have you like, there's a lot of statues at, at Bush stadium. <laughs> like why would your, your best player in the modern era not have a statue when so many players have a statue. But I think that speaks to the the conflict that I was trying to explain in that there's this weird dynamic because he left. Like it wasn't a trade. It wasn't, they sent him away. He left. (laughs) So there's still like, that doesn't take away from anything that happened in 11 years prior, but it Mm -hmm. does sort of draw a line in the sand where with other players that might not be there that might that little that little nugget that little thing in your mind when you're thinking about Albert Pujols is yeah he had his hall of fame establishing years in St. Louis but also he left and i think that's why right or wrong logical or not that's why there's still this little bit of a hiccup for people in thinking about what the legacy of Albert Pujols is in St. Louis because it could have been, perhaps should have been, just absolutely undeniable as the best player to ever play for the organization. Yeah, it certainly would have been cool had he retired a Cardinal and just obliterated every single uh, you know offensive category that the Cardinals have, and then they erect a statue the size of stands, either you know right next to stands or or, or whatever. But to me it would be outrageous for him not to have a statue. Like, I, I don't I don't know who, I'm trying to think off my head who who has statues at Bush and if any of them left. You know, part of the reasons why it hurt so bad is because he was so good. Yeah. And because he was so good, because he was so awesome, that's why he gets a statue, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it, it totally makes sense. I think there's, there, there, the thing that makes it complicated for a lot of people is the emotion involved in what ended up basically being a business decision, although that's not how he describes it. And if you hear him talk about it now, it it, it was much more personal to him than I think he let on at the time. And, you know, we could spend another 
45 minutes debating whether the Cardinals should have or shouldn't have made him a better offer and if he should or shouldn't have accepted what they offered him. That's a whole different part of this conversation. The point is, it was great to see that part of the relationship between Cardinals fans and the Pujols family. I don't know, restored might seem like it's a little bit too strong, but at least cemented in what can be the future, whatever it looks like between the city and, as we keep saying, one of the best, if not the best, to ever wear the birds on the bat. Yeah, and, and I just thought of something if uh, about something that happened in the three-game series that doesn't involve uh, Pujols, if, if you have nothing else to say about Pujols, because I think I said my favorite. Feel free, yeah. I want to talk about the Colton Wong play. <laughs> well, and I know. Let me let me settle I, in. <laughs> I'd be shocked if you did not want to talk about the Colton Wong play. I would love to talk about the Colton Wong play. All right, let's break it down. So, wh- what would you call that hit? Like a chopper to, to say, like a slow, sure. yeah. slow roller, a chop. Like what would you? Okay, so man on first. I, I, I since I decided to talk about this play, I should probably have the details better down. But I don't remember who was up. But they hit a. I get yeah chopper to second towards Colton Wong and he goes to turn two here's what I love about the play he does this sort of little uh almost like a volleyball pass <laughs> I don't know what, what would you call that like a hand like a hand pa- in in I was gonna say in hockey I'm as I've learned might be called a hand pass yeah <laughs> yeah but it but it yeah okay so y- you've seen this play done before only when they actually glove it and then yeah you know, squeezing the glove or still having it in the glove, they shovel it to the second baseman. That is not what he did. He deflected it, I think would be the better word, towards the young, who then turned the double play. What I love about the play is that he seemed to know immediately that was a play that had to be made to, to turn two. Because it was a very close play at first. And I'm not sure if he does the play that I just described where the ball actually goes into his glove if they're able to turn that double play. So I love that part. I think the unsung hero, well, hero might be a little strong, but I think Paul DeYoung deserves a little credit for being ready for it because he had to not know that that's what Colton was going to do. And, and like, You can't possibly be anticipating that no, shovel and, pass or whatever exactly. it was. Just how quickly the ball ricocheted off Colton right to – to Paul DeYoung, you can kind of see Paul DeYoung reacting to it in real time and immediately turning it to get the double play. I love that part. And lastly, I just love the fact that I had never seen that done before. Uh, I'm not saying it hasn't been done before. I have never seen that done before. I think it's my favorite Colton Wong play. You know, there's that play last year against the Dodgers uh, that was an uh, incredible throw where he made from the other side of the infield to, uh, I forget who it was, but to get someone out. Yeah. But just in a Sunday night game, to have the announcers on ESPN, and I actually think this is a big deal for, for these types of awards, to be saying, like, hand him the gold glove right now. Um, you know, that's probably going to carry some weight, even though it, I, whether it should, who cares. Um, <laughs> but it was just an awesome, awesome play. Uh, I could watch it all day. I know you like it, because I, I, you love Colton Wong. You are a noted Colton Wong fan. Do you have anything to add to what I just said? I, I Did I describe it correctly? Yeah. Um, full disclosure, I have it pulled up on my phone <laughs> and I keep watching it over and over as you're describing it. But yeah, it's, it's a play that you see something close to it 
not every night. And it's always a great play. It'll be on some highlight uh, reel on a, a sports show somewhere the next day. But this wasn't that. You're right. It wasn't it wasn't like Colton cleanly fielded the ball. It was just like a deflection, uh, a redirect that to your point, I don't know how Paul DeYoung wasn't caught off guard by it, except that this is the kind of thing that Colton Wong is capable of that very few players in the game are. And, and maybe that's me with rose colored glasses talking about what Colton Wong is capable of, because I, I think of him as that capable, but Man, to have him make a play like that under the the bright lights of Sunday Night Baseball, and I think you're right, to make a play like that in front of a national audience and to impress, it sounds stupid, but to impress a national broadcast booth and to get the attention from it that it did, I think there maybe is a, a little bit of what we see Colton Wong being capable of that flies under the radar as far as baseball is concerned, in part because the Cardinals as a team haven't been very impressive. So not a lot of people are paying attention to what goes on, particularly defensively. But that was a play unlike anything I think I've ever seen. And that's what's so special about what Colton Wong can bring to this team. A lot of people will point to a certain number of errors or whatever the case may be. First of all, that's a bad way to judge someone's defensive ability. But he gets two plays with the chance to make them more regularly than other people do because he can do things like he did in that particular play on that particular night. What I think is interesting about it, and this is the last note that I'll, I'll make here is that his teammates weren't surprised. (laughs) Uh, It was just kind of this like, yep, that's uh, that's how we're going to do that. And of course, it was immediately followed by an Albert Pujols ovation. So there wasn't a lot of time to stand around and, and gawk at what had just happened. But I, I don't think there were too many reactions uh, that, that we saw on the broadcast, at least, where people were particularly surprised that he w- was able to uh, to start a double play off that way. Now, not often does a double play garner a standing ovation. So the fans were impressed, which they they very well should have been. But that's the kind of thing that he's capable of. And it's it's fun to see him do it when the lights are the brightest. You said you were watching it on your phone? Yes. Could you tell from watching it, because I don't have it in front of me, but this was my impression the hundred times I did watch it, is that <laughs> they don't turn the double play, one, if he feels it cleanly. No, and, no, no. No chance. What about if he actually... Uh, puts a glove on the ball. Well, it go what if the ball actually goes into his glove and he does the shovel pass to Dion? Do you think he do you think they turn it there? No, I don't think because yeah. they only get Calhoun by like half a step. So that's okay, so that's what I think is so cool about that play. It's like he knew immediately that's what he was going to have to yeah. do. And and that's a very risky play because that could have turned bad if Well, uh, and not only that, the not to dive too deep into this, but I mean the angle he's coming at the play to where the ball needs to go. It's such a short distance. Sometimes, you know, in basketball, if you try to make a chess pass at somebody too close, it startles them. And and especially if they're not expecting it, they'll bobble. All of those things could have happened because it happened so quickly. It happened without really the chance to think through what was going to happen. And evidently, 
there was some, I don't know if it was quick thinking or just instinct on the part of Colton Wong to know that that was a play they had to have. And the only way to do it was to, you know, not actually ever catch the ball, just sort of, just sort of knock it into the glove of Paul DeYoung. You crazy, you, crazy play. You, uh, you cover figure skating, right? Yeah. Is it like degree of difficulty a thing in figure skating? It is. I feel, so I feel like that had a high degree of difficulty. And I don't know if this is a figure skating term, but just like a very big risk factor. Uh, yeah. That if you pull it off, you are awesome. If you don't, you look stupid. Uh, so, so that's the risk. Uh, you can either be a hero or uh, look silly. And he pulled it off. So he was the hero. And then the other thing that comes on top of that in figure skating scoring is what we call a grade of execution, which is essentially like style points. Uh-huh. <laughs> How well did you execute that? That gets all the style points. So it's, it's a 10. Is that, is that yeah. any great figure yeah. skating on a scale of one to 10? No, uh, or a hundred, like 80? A little more complicated like than that. Oh, okay. <laughs> you basically start at zero. 50s, and 50s right? Isn't, like, you isn't like if you get a 50, that's a good score? Um, sort of, okay. but this is a whole, it's a whole different, uh, right. well, whole I'm different giving him a 10, a 50, a hundred, whatever the score it is. Perfect score. Is. Yeah, it, was perfect, board. it was a perfect score. Yeah. I'll take that more of that every chance we get. Unfortunately, there was some bad news from the weekend. So let's dive into that real quick, just because it's the most recent news as far as things with the Cardinals pitching staff is concerned. And that is Jordan Hicks down for the year. We'll have Tommy John surgery on Wednesday morning. When we saw him leave the mound on Saturday, it didn't look great, but the initial reports were tendonitis. It'll be fine. And then a couple days later, all of a sudden it's a tear in the UCL. And as of Wednesday morning, he will have Tommy John surgery and be down for probably a year at this rate. That seems to be how those things go. So tough blow losing Jordan Hicks. And there's a bit of a domino effect there as there always is that makes things a little bit more interesting for a pitching staff that doesn't have a lot of wiggle room right now. Yeah, it's a bummer. Uh, Especially, you know, bullpens are very important this day and age. They're throwing more innings than they ever have before. So you take out one of your Good bullpen guys, and as you said, it's kind of a domino effect. I think they, uh, Dan Simborski today at Fangrass calculated it that it, you know you wouldn't think it would be this big a chunk, but it really does affect their their playoff odds. You know, I I had already left. I left on Saturday to go um, to a prior engagement almost right after Pujols' home run, um, and so I I didn't see it happen. Uh, but look, he's a he's a pitcher. He's a he's a relief pitcher at that who throws really hard. I'm not enough of a pitching, I guess, guru to know whether or not how big of a factor the throwing hard part is, but it certainly common sense would tell you that it seems like it would be some sort of a factor. Uh, I, I guess my point here is the idea of him getting hurt based on all of that isn't is very, very plausible because he's a pitcher. He's a relief pitcher and that's what they do. They get hurt. Uh, but it's still it's just a huge bummer, um, especially for him, a guy who's so young. Uh, and if we're talking, Tommy John, which what he's having tomorrow morning, I believe, or maybe yeah. people are listening to this, you know, yeah. so that, Wednesday morning, I yeah. believe. Yeah. That might just go ahead and erase his entire 2020 season. Although I think they said they're going to wait to say whether, whether or not that's the case following his surgery. Uh, 
it's just a bummer. It's it, it's not something that should sink a season. You know, he is still just a relief pitcher. He is still only going to be, you know, was probably only uh, projected to, you know, pitch, what, 30 more innings the rest of the season? I, I don't know. Um, so it, it, it's not something that should wreck a season. But when you're in a spot where the Cardinals are right now, where they're slowly marching towards this spot of almost very little margin of error, it's something you don't want to see happen. Yeah, and it resulted in some interesting decisions being made right away as far as how you reorganize the bullpen, naming Carlos Martinez the closer. I hated that, by the way, but I'll... Yeah, I mean, I sort of want to... I don't know if we want to dive all the way into that, but I do want to go there because, look, we talked all offseason about how Mike Schilt had the chance to play his cards differently with a bullpen that could be... You could mix and match. You could do things differently than you'd done before. You had enough variety and enough flexibility that you could use guys based on situation and not necessarily on role. And essentially what we saw all season was, well, pretty traditional roles. And then as soon as there's an opportunity for a new role to be assigned, that's exactly what they go back to. So it does sort of present this side conversation about how the bullpen is being utilized when it was supposed to be different this year, much like everything else was supposed to be different. And surprise, it's also not. Yeah, it'd be one thing if you had a guy in the wings who has traditionally been a closer, uh, who basically says, I only want to be a closer on that. Like, who's that old Angels closer? I can't think. Street, was that his name? Who basically said, like, if I'm not closing right. games, I'm not pitching. But obviously, but obviously, Carlos Martinez isn't that guy. Yeah, it's not the biggest deal in the world, but I just see no reason why it would immediately be like assign, you know, these rigid bullpen rules the minute our closer goes down instead of just kind of letting it play out, having a more progressive, uh, you know, bullpen management uh, from here on out. Uh, granted, this is a complaint that almost everyone can make about their managers as much as we <laughs> all talk about, you know, I guess Francona from back in 2016. Um, it's not like it's a trend that has totally engulfed all of baseball because it's not. I, I think you know most teams still have their um, traditional bullpen roles or at least a traditional uh, closer. But it's like what you said. It just I, I think we thought Schilt was kind of a more think outside the box guy. And again, I, I don't want to ding him too hard for this because I don't think it's the biggest of deals. But he's he just hasn't shown to be that guy, at least to me. No, he certainly has been more like the status quo, I think, than anyone expected, not just as far as the bullpen is concerned, even in tonight's game that has now gotten very out of hand and the visitors have a 7-3 to three lead in the bottom of the sixth inning. Even in this game, decisions about how long to leave the starting pitcher in or when to you know go for it and try to put some runs on the board with with the pitcher spot up or whatever it is, it's been much more traditional, I suppose, than I think a lot of people expected. And that, you know, what that means or, or how successful that becomes is maybe to be determined, but it hasn't been great so far. It's been pretty average, at least with the the way that the players have responded and executed on their part as well. So Jordan Hicks down for the year, shuffles some things around a bit, man. I, I hate that for Jordan because um, you know, we've seen him 
be one of those guys that can draw national attention to this team with the things he's capable of doing. But at the same time, maybe he doesn't need to try to throw 106. Maybe he needs to just try to, you know, do what gets outs instead of do what lights up radar guns. And I'm sure he'll have plenty of opportunities to do that. The good thing for him is that he is so very young that there is certainly time on his side as far as recovery and, and getting back to a place where he can contribute to this team down the road. We could keep going on and on about these very few topics, <laughs> apparently, but let's uh, let's move on from this. Alex, I, I believe you have a chirp of the week. I do. You know, I, I should probably update the RBI standings because that's what I'm pivoting to after Paul, oh, sure. Paul DeYoung ruined. Well, no, I don't have it in front of me right now. I just thought of it. Ah. After Paul DeYoung ruined my great uh, interest in the batting race. Uh, with by, <laughs> he, he's literally been awful since I first started doing that. So maybe I don't want to jinx Marcelo Zuna, the RBI race. This is at the urging of our friend uh, Shop Talk. But I was noticing on baseball prospectuses. Have you seen this? They have their new leaderboards. They're awesome. I'm so happy I have, to have these. Seen it? I haven't had a lot of time yeah, to dive finally, into it yet. Finally, I, I made a note to our to friend of the podcast, Matt Trueblood, today that finally you have leaderboards that um, I'm smart enough to use. That's a long time coming. But I was looking at Ozuna earlier, and he's right in the thick of things. But I don't have it in front of me now, so I'm just going to go right to the trip of the week. And as you mentioned, we're watching the Cardinals play the A's, and Stephen Piscotti is back in town. With the A's playing right field, uh, most of us know the story of, you know, how we ended up in Oakland. Um, it's a touching story. It's a heartbreaking story. I, I So I don't want to necessarily dive into that right now. But way back in the day, I have, I, so I have a very good friend. His name is Nate McArdle. And he had a little, or he had, he has a little brother named Dean McArdle who pitched at Stanford University. Uh, at the same time that Stephen Piscotti played there. And I'm going to read you an email exchange I had with my friend Nathan from January 7th, 2014, where I was trying to get a decent scouting report on Piscotti. Now, the fact that it's January 2014, if I wanted to get a decent scouting report on Piscotti, it would not have been hard to do. <laughs> because <laughs> He was already, uh, you know, pretty high up the ranks at this point. But, you know, I wanted inside info from someone who actually played with him, see if I could get anything good. Uh, and so I'm just going to read you uh, this email exchange I had. First, I wrote an email to my friend Nathan. Ask your brother what I need to know about Stephen Piscotti. He is one of the Cardinals' top prospects, and I think he played at Stanford when Dean was there. Thank you, Alex. Again, this is from January 2014. Nathan replies and CCs Dean on the email. He did, and even I have met him and his parents. I remember a good kid, decent bat, good arm, suspect glove. Or maybe that is my memory of the entire team. I think that's a shot at uh, his <laughs> brother and the Stanford uh, Cardinal, I, I guess, baseball team. Uh, then he asked Dean, question mark, meaning time for Dean to interject himself in the conversation. But Dean doesn't first. I say something. I say... I just read that they moved him to third base, from third base to the outfield this year, and he pleasantly surprised everyone with his glove. He also hit very well in double A, which has me excited. Dean, now that I think about it, weren't you telling me about this guy the last time I saw you? And here's Dean McArdle. He finally enters the fray. Uh, again, Dean pitched at Stanford with, with Biscotti. I probably was. Uh, that's him answering my question of whether or not he was talking about Biscotti to me. 
Steven is a very great dude, makes ton of solid contacts, doesn't strike out, will gain power with age, but stinks in the field. It's not very nice. Uh, guy has a, remember <laughs> that he was, I guess he was more of a third baseman at Stanford, so at Stanford um, and then he became an outfielder, so that he could be alluding to that. Guy has a cannon arm. He threw 95 off the bump, but can't throw the ball from third to first to save his life. Uh, also not very nice. Uh, decent, but whatever. Decent enough outfielder, but would need to start hitting bombs to stay at right field or left field. Regardless of that, he'd absolutely be in the league this year if he was in a less stacked organization than the Cardinals. Well, that part kind of makes me sad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so I reply, thanks for the info, Dean. Exclamation point. Coincidentally, he came up in a chat I was reading today with one of the Cardinals writers on the beat. And now we go to a copy and paste job I did from Derek Gould's chat from that day in which Josh, in which at Josh Handler asks, could we see Piscotty in St. Louis at some point in 2014? And Derek Gould says, there are members of the front office who believe he will make his debut in 2014. That could come in September as a call-up, or it could come sooner if there's an injury that makes it necessary. They are high on his arrival happening in the coming season. Then we get another email from my from Dean, who says, they thought about bringing him up, and I never knew this, but listen to this. They thought about bringing him up in the World Series when Beltran got hurt. Now, hmm. I believe that's in reference to when Beltran took away that Grand Slam from Ortiz and crashed into the wall and like basically broke some ribs. Do you remember this? Right. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's what he was talking about. So there was a chance we could have seen Piscotti as early as the 2013 World Series if Dean McArdle is um, to be believed, and I believe he is. I find him to be a very reliable and reputable guy. Um, I reply, thank you very much for the inside info, Dean. I really appreciate it. As we know, uh, he was not called up in the 2013 World Series or even 2014, as uh, Derek Gould uh, suggested could happen. He wasn't called up until, I believe, June of 2015. And he immediately, if you recall, Tara, looked very comfortable in the batter's box. Uh, He was very good that first season. He had an OPS plus of 130. He he had a lot of BABIP luck, if I recall, that year. But he, he was just a very, very good player and... I don't know if this is a search that can be done, but it wouldn't surprise me if he has the highest OPS for any Cardinal in the postseason. Granted, he's only played in one postseason with the Cardinals, and so he only has 18 uh, plate appearances. So we probably have to have like a sample size of like a minimum 15 plate appearances. But he has a 14.44 OPS uh, in those four (laughs) games. Uh, so he had three home runs that series against the Cubs, had uh, six runs batted in, and scored five times. So even though that series was awful, that's when everything started, you could argue, to go wrong. Uh, Steven Piscotti was the bright spot. Um, it's nice to see him back in St. Louis tonight. I'm really, I was really happy to see him get that hand. Uh, he, had, uh, he got the uh, during his first at-bat. Thought it was well-deserved. It's also very cool. His family's there, so they got to see that as well. Um, he had a very good second half of 2018 last year and ended up with, I believe, 27 home runs. And so he he kind of is not off to that start right now this year, but hopefully he has a very similar second half and he continues to have a great career in Oakland. And that is your trip of the week. Tara, do you have any Piscotti notes or memories? I do have some Piscotti uh, memories. Thought, so, did you like that email exchange? That was great. Yeah, that perfect. was great. Yeah. So I, the minor league team that I cover, 
was a Cardinals affiliate a number of years ago. And Steve Piscotti was one of the guys that came through at that time. And he always stood out to me. It's interesting, you know, you there's this very clear difference often between the kids drafted out of high school and the guys who come after they have a collegiate career of some sort. Huh. Steve Piscotti was one of those guys, you know, for better or worse, there there are differences there, right? Guys who, yeah. who have had a little more time to adjust to maybe having to answer some questions in a, a media setting or I, even just kind of get to know themselves a little bit more. There's a, a very like distinct know, difference. I'd like to know for the record, I was awful at both times in my life, but go ahead. <laughs> so, I, you know, so there's not always a dramatic <laughs> difference, but sometimes. Uh, but Piscotti was a guy that always stood out to me because we always hear, even tonight on the broadcast, they're talking about what a, a brainiac he is. We're super mm-hmm. smart guy. He's got a lot going on for him outside of baseball, perhaps at some point in his life. But he was one of the guys that came through that that group and that was just incredibly sharp, thoughtful, intelligent about the way that he communicated with people. And you could immediately tell he was sort of that classic good teammate kind of guy. But I wrote about him shortly after he got to the Quad Cities, was playing with the River Bandits. I think he'd been there uh, like 20, 25 games, something like that. And I spoke to him at that point, and I just pulled it up because I couldn't remember exactly what he said. But I was asking him, you know, what what Cardinals fans, what the local fans at this level would see from him on the field. And this is what he said. He said, I don't consider myself a really flashy player, but my thing is just trying to stay consistent, go up there and have good at bats, play solid defense, just be an all around consistent player. He followed that by saying, I'm going to start trying to hit more home runs and all that stuff. But right now I'm just going to play how I've always played and hopefully fans will enjoy that. I don't know that there's a more accurate description someone could give of themselves than that from Steven Piscotti. Like I said, very self-aware and very capable of uh, evidently expressing himself quite clearly, even at that stage of his career. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, I want people to know I, I didn't betray any confidence of uh, former teammate Dean McCardle of uh, of Stephen Scotty. I was told I was allowed to share that info, that inside info, um, even when he said he couldn't uh, make that throw from third to third to uh, <laughs> third to first to save his life. But you know that's why he now plays in the right field, I guess. Hey, uh, former teammates can say that stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, we all love Stephen Scotty. It's nice to see him back. Absolutely, it is. Even if the score is lopsided in favor of the visitors tonight, still 7-3 as we wrap things up at this point. So quite the emotional roller coaster from the Albert Pujols adventure to the Colton Wong highlight to the Jordan Hicks news that sets things reeling a little bit. But that is where we leave things tonight. Hopefully next week we have more of the positive variety to talk about and we will catch up with you then. Make sure that you're following the podcast wherever you listen. It's the Birds on the Black podcast page and you can find us there as well as anything else that comes out of the Birds on the Black site. Always new stuff going up there. You can follow both of us on Twitter. I'm at Tara Wellman. He's at AlexCard79. We'll talk to you next time.